from the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show, a full hour of stimulating, thought-provoking information you need to know, plus a whole lot more. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. Welcome to the show. What we're going to hear tonight is very important. My guest, Joe Douglas, is going to tell you some disturbing things. We live in a country with great comfort. We live in a country where money is flowing, jobs are readily available. You got the shopping mall regime. This is what I call it. It's a beautiful place to live. It's a beautiful place and time to live. But all of that ease and comfort and all of that money has somehow had an effect on us. It's corrupted us. I mean, from the the regular working class person all the way up to the to the bankers and the politicians and the generals. Everybody's been affected. And uh, my guest, Joe Douglas, he's a national security expert who wrote many years ago a book called Red Cocaine. And he's going to discuss the many things he found, where his research led him. It's going to be very disturbing. It's not going to be something that you're used to hearing. But he has the facts, and I want you to know his books are very carefully researched, and he's been very well respected for many years in the uh, national security world. We'll be back with my guest, Joe Douglas, after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We're Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is my guest, Joe Douglas. He is author of many books on national security related matters, including Red Cocaine and America the Vulnerable. Um, welcome to the show, Joe. It's good to be with you, Jeff. Yeah. Now, it, it's very interesting because you were writing about weapons of mass destruction and terrorism uh, Gee, two decades ago, long before it became the popular fare in the news media, um, you definitely ahead of your time. Can, do you have any comments about the way the public consciousness has evolved on this question? Um, in terrorism, it's almost been managed, it seems to me, because uh, terrorism is inherently a problem that was produced by uh, the communist world, uh, most notably Russia. Who adopted terrorism as a as a national uh, intelligence operation, really what they call a strategic intelligence operation, back in about 1955. However, it is uh, not politically correct correct to talk about the crimes of the communists, and consequently, uh, our government and uh, governments around the world, for that matter, and the news media, uh, with rare exceptions, uh, never took up on. Uh, advertising the crimes of communism or things like uh, their role in international terrorism. Um, 
there started to be a little bit of breakthrough come in the 1980s as a result of a number of studies people did, which showed that the Soviet Union was really a major player in international terrorism. Uh, but the U.S. government not, tried not to acknowledge that, and indeed the CIA did their best to uh, destroy a, a study that was done that showed how strong the Soviet Union was in sponsoring and recruiting uh, people for international terrorists. And uh, that was starting to catch hold a little bit in the uh, late 1980s, but then you had this uh, uh, change that took, a, took place in between 1989 and 1991, and in the process, the policy that was adopted was go right back to the silence of, of crimes of the communists, particularly Russia, because we didn't want to do anything to undermine the Russian uh, uh, movement toward a democratic society. And consequently, uh, once again, we forgot totally about the Russian role in terrorism, which is the way it is today. Uh, today, we look at Middle East terrorists, and we have since uh, 9-11, certainly, as being a product of the Middle East, not recognizing that Middle East terrorism was uh, was uh, uh, created by the Soviet Union and sponsored by them and fed by them and groomed by them and grown by them, hmm. uh, along with most other terrorist operations around the world, too. And as late as 1988, there have been reports of uh, uh, major funding connections between al-Qaeda and uh, Russia, um, but those are few and far between. And uh, it even was only, there's only been one minor reference that I was aware of that tied the uh, second in command at Al-Qaeda, Zawari, who was was really a a Soviet agent back when he came from uh, the Egyptian terrorist operation that he uh, was heavily involved in. So uh, uh, you've had this uh, terrorism evolve, but it's been manipulated in terms of what people understand about it. So what they understand about it leaves out, in my opinion, uh, the most important aspect of the whole operation, which is the uh, the role uh, since day one of Russia and other communist nations. What's interesting is that we've had this evolution of the Russian mafia, or I've even heard it called the Slavic mafia, uh, in uh, recent times. And in your book, uh, Red Cocaine, uh, you mentioned the connection, the drug connection with all these drug cartels. There is actually a Soviet strategic intelligence operation involved in that. That's true, Jeff, and the same is true of organized crime as well. And as a matter of fact, those three organizations, organized crime, terrorism, and narcotics trafficking, uh, came into being at the same time, roughly 1955. And they, were, they all played interacting roles in other words, they were all re- really directed to undermine the West in particular, but the world revolutionary process in general. Uh, that was their purpose, as a matter of fact, was to bring the revolutionary process into the current day. And you had the case then where the role of the uh, narcotics trafficking was to undermine the people, and in particular to undermine the future leaders of America because they believed that when the youth were on drugs, that when they grew up to become leaders, they would be weak leaders. The organized crime was really uh, undertaken for a variety of reasons, but it all keyed on the corruption of the elite. And uh, that was the role of organized crime, to corrupt the elite, beginning really with the banking community and the uh, politicians who have always been uh, very big into one way or another uh, organized crime 
And the uh, another benefit of organized crime and rationale for it was its use to uh, really split the West, uh, split the United States away from other countries, although this was also a key attribute of terrorism. Now, terrorism, the function of terrorism was really to uh, undermine the stability of countries and thus prepare the revolutionary situation. It was to cause the people to lose faith in the government uh, because invariably the government overreacts to terrorism and it is the people that suffer. And so the people eventually um, recognize that the government can't stop terrorism and the whole thing is causing the people uh, more pain than good and so they uh, are ready to dump the government in effect. So it undermines the stability of the country and prepares a way for revolution. And then the other main object in the uh, terrorism is to split the United States, to isolate the United States away from other nations. And we can see that process taking place uh, in spades over the past six years. It's interesting. What you describe is exactly what happened in Rhodesia and South Africa with the terrorists in those countries. Yes, that's been a, a case with the terrorism. It's a it's really a, uh, has its main effect on the uh, assumption, and very correct assumption, that the government is going to react in the wrong way and overreact. And uh, thus the, uh, the government gets drawn into this thing, but they don't know how to fight it, and in, in essence end up fighting the people. And of course, then that leads to the revolutionary situation. It's happened particularly in Latin America also. And it turns the people against the government. Yes, and that's the, one of the primary objectives of the whole thing. Wow. With me is Joe Douglas, Joseph D. Douglas, Jr., author of Red Cocaine and uh, uh, other books on national security matters. Uh, America the Vulnerable was a book you did with, uh, I think the other author's name was John Livingston? Uh, Neil Livingston. Uh, Neil Livingston, that's right. And that book fascinated me because you talked about the kind of chemical and toxin weapons and biological weapons that were being developed by the East Bloc at that time, weapons that we have heard about, especially since 9-11. Perhaps you could uh, tell us, are those weapons still out there after the fall of the Soviet Union? I'm not sure that there's any weapons that have really gone away with the fall of the Soviet Union, and uh, particularly the chemical and biological weapons. Um, it's strange. It's another case where we didn't want to acknowledge what the Soviet Union was doing. Um, back in... Uh, 1969, when Nixon just came into office, as you will, uh, the United States unilaterally uh, left the whole field of chemical and biological weapons. In 69, uh, uh, President Nixon de declared a, uh, that uh, the United States would no longer be involved in biological warfare. Uh, there was a unilateral declaration, and that led to the destruction of all our stocks in biological warfare, all work going on, and even most uh, intelligence uh, disappeared. Uh, the mm -hmm. following year, he extended that ban to also include toxin weapons. And so the work that the United States had in looking at toxins uh, was also uh, put in the wastebasket. And then over the next uh, uh, three years, they and continuing even to the current day, uh, they've continued to, they uh, declared a no first use of chemical weapons, and then they uh, pushed very hard for every uh, chemical uh, arms control treaty there was, uh, with the result that the United States basically went out 
of business of chemical and biological warfare, but 74. And the reason, one of the reasons that we went out of it so quickly when the president said that is there was really not very much opposition to his taking us out uh, because uh, the military services went along with it because to them it was removing a pain in the neck from around their shoulders because it's so hard to try and fight in a chemical and biological warfare environment that you, you can't fight. And so you really do nothing, so you have a tremendous expense just to stay alive. And so they were glad to get rid of it. The problem was that at the time that we were going out of the business, and this is not just a coincidence, uh, the Soviet Union was making a massive expansion in both fields of chemical and biological warfare. And their expansion had two elements to it. Number one was a tremendous uh, improvement in their capability to use chemical and biological weapons in their current military deployments and plans. Uh, they liked this because they could then capture Europe without doing a lot of damage. The second part of their plans was their long-term efforts. And there they had come to the conclusion that there were so many advances in both chemical and biological agents that were coming about as a result of technology, because that's just on the cusp, as you will remember thinking back, of the whole revolution in biotechnology, which came into play a few years after that. And they saw that coming, and they knew that that was going to make tremendous uh, difference in their chemical warfare and biological warfare capability. So they had a, a tremendous effort that came into play to incorporate it into their war fighting capabilities and at the same time to undertake a new research and development effort whose goal was qualitatively new families of biological and chemical weapons that would come into being in the late 1980s. In the United States, because they could not allow themselves to see or tolerate any damage on the uh, the image of arms control, uh, basically uh, hid their head under the sand and uh, ignored uh, intelligence, or in one case uh, really suppressed it so nobody would know about it, and in other cases claimed that it was uh, had no strategic significance. So we basically totally ignored what the Soviets were doing until a couple of defectors started coming out in 1989 and 1992. And those defectors basically uh, confirmed the worst of what a very small number of people who were concerned about the United States not paying attention to the Soviets, and indeed uh, uh, ended up saying it was about 100 times worse than anybody had ever suspected. But still, the United States paid no attention to it, and we are largely uh, uh, treading water at the present time, and you have efforts going out now that you've had some terrorist attacks on anthrax and a bunch of other stuff, but in terms of still paying any attention to what the Soviets had gotten into, there's uh, next to nothing going on, to my knowledge. And so we're talking about weapons that are cheaper than nuclear weapons and potentially more effective and user-friendly than nuclear weapons. Yes, Jeff, and precisely why the Soviets decided that they were going to the, in the chemical and biological warfare route in preference to nuclear weapons. Back in uh, 1965, they made that decision. Hmm. It, it doesn't undermine the importance of nuclear because you cannot slack off your effort there. Mm -hmm. But they recognized that it would be possible to put a lid on the nuclear capabilities, really, of the United States through arms control 
And uh, when that happened, the advances that they would have in chemical and biological warfare would mean that they could be even more powerful using those weapons and not bringing nuclear uh, weapons into the equation. Now, here's an area where having a really good intelligence service is absolutely of ultimate importance because, if I'm understanding you correctly, a, a biological attack, if you don't have good intelligence on how biological weapons are being delivered and who's delivering them and who's manufacturing them, you're not going to know who's attacking you when you start to get hit by these things, are you? No, you're not. And a good example of that is this uh, uh, game that was played with anthrax following the 9-11 terrorist attack. Uh, you had several people killed and a number of uh, deployments, really, of, uh, of anthrax in various forms, all of them much more sophisticated than any terrorist would be expected to do. And we have no idea, to my knowledge, of where that came from or who, who perpetrated it. Matter of fact, we've tried our best to try and blame it on U.S. scientists as opposed to even looking at what the Soviets' role might have been in that. Now, I was never a really good student of biology, but I seem to remember two things in studying about diseases when I was in school. And one thing is that the more infectious something is, the less virulent, that is, the less lethal it tends to be, and the more lethal it is, the less less infectious. Now, they can change that with the new biotechnology? Um, yeah, that's an interesting uh, view of that I hadn't, hadn't uh, heard, but then uh, I'm not a student of biology myself either. Uh, yeah, the, the tricks with the new technology is to give you tremendous uh, flexibility. You know, before one of the, the main reasons that anthrax was so good was that you could uh, it could withstand the explosive effects of the delivery uh, systems that were used to disseminate the powder. Uh, now, when you get into the newer types of capabilities, you can take very, in, in, let's say, uh, infectious agents or things that are highly communicable and alter them by incorporating in them the genes required to produce the toxins that are more virulent. And so you then have the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, not only that, they can uh, make that new organism um, so that it is immune from the effects of the latest antibiotics. Uh, of course, that can be done also by uh, just growing the organism itself and applying antibiotics until you have you know a couple of strains that uh, aren't killed by it, and then you've got a basically a uh, antibiotic re resistant strain. That was one of the, the uh, things that the Soviets had already accomplished uh, by 1990 so that you can greatly improve uh, the virulence of existing org organisms. You can uh, uh, change organisms so as to make new ones that can do all sorts of things and uh, not only be more virulent, uh, but make them so that they're harder to kill and very difficult to diagnose in the first place. And hmm. this is without going into uh, the more sophisticated uh, types of activities which uh, allow them to interfere with the actual uh, biological processes of the human. And, of course, the U.S. medical infrastructure and system, and I've talked to doctors and nurses about this, it is completely unprepared for a major epidemic. Yes, very much so. And uh, the way in which these things interrelate, 
can give you an idea of the magnitude of this problem. You were talking about how difficult it is to know when something comes into the country. Uh, well, drugs come in fairly easily. Mm -hmm. And uh, back in the 1968 time frame, the, uh, the Soviets were very big in drugs, not as big as they are today, but they were still very big. And at that time, their estimate was that they controlled something like 35% of the drugs coming into the United States. And that's grown, I'm sure, uh, over the intervening years. But their, their drug trafficking techniques, when they were set up, were designed not only to move drugs into the United States, but also to be a route and a mechanism for importing contraband, such as biological or chemical weapons, in anticipation of a war. Hmm. And the idea was that the, the smuggling routes for drugs would be equally applicable to things like biological uh, weapons, and obviously you see how they would be, or chemical. And so that in the event a war was imminent or you wanted to bring them into the country, by using the routes for the drugs, no one would see any difference so that people wouldn't pick up on the fact that there was something coming into the country other than the usual narcotic drugs in the smuggling routes. And in advance of an attack, they could inoculate or immunize their own people. Absolutely. And, of course, one of the things that they also used, but they used them more carefully, I believe, is, is their interest in uh, developing and putting focus on diseases for which there were no known defenses. And hmm. these, of course, were the types of things that were intended for use in assassinations, uh, but were there doing their own development. Uh, they can prepare their own antidotes for things that they have developed and about which the United States is ignorant and, you know, 10 years away from knowing how to uh, uh, defend against them because of the secrecy involved. Let's talk about assassination since you raised it just now. Um, we had last year the assassination of a KGB defector, uh, Alexander Litvinenko, in London, and he was poisoned with the radioactive substance polonium-210. Um, and I understand there was a defector back uh, 40 years ago who was poisoned with a radioactive substance as well and survived. Uh, I believe it was uh, Koklov was the name of the man. Um, is is poisoning with radioactivity, is that is there a reason why they use radioactivity instead of some other kind of way of killing? Um, the only thing that struck me is it was designed to be known who did it. Mm. And that was the reason for using polonium. And polonium is used for the nuclear trigger mechanisms in Russian satchel nuclear weapons, aren't they? Um, I really don't know. Hmm. Um, a lot of them, I think, would have uh, plutonium, um, but I, I don't know where, where plutonium would come in there. That's just, uh, I'm not aware of that at all, Jeff. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting that you say that they wanted people to know because it seems like the world does know that the Russian government uh, used this method to assassinate, and the British government has acknowledged privately to journalists that it's that it knows full well, and yet uh, nothing is really done uh, for the same reason that you mentioned before, that it sort of upsets the economic apple cart in the West. We don't want to confront these realities because of the expense, and it would upset our nice way of life here in the West. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's another thing. We see it with increasing amounts in the current day, I'd say, and that's sort of a, a uh, arrogance that people realize that there's nothing will be done or can be done, and so they go ahead and do it, 
and uh, that message gets communicated also, and it uh, concerns people a little bit and stirs up anxiety. Do you think that uh, that China, now we've talked about Russia, do you think that China is developing these weapons too? I've heard some things from China about this. Yes, I do. Uh, China was very concerned about chemical weapons and was uh, had them and was working on uh, more advanced forms, not as advanced as the Soviets, but more advanced forms back as early as uh, the Korean War. And as a matter of fact, the... Uh, the United States lost a large number of prisoners that uh, were taken that were never accounted for. I think the, the total number was around 8,000, and a, a real accurate number would probably be even larger than that. Uh, some of those pr prisoners were used by the, uh, the Soviets as human guinea pigs in doing things like testing chemical and biological warfare agents, and uh, prisoners were also passed to Chinese and they also use them as human guinea pigs in testing those those two types of weapons. And that is important to them because to the extent they see the United States as an enemy, they want to make sure that they test weapons like that against actual U.S., you know, young, healthy males, which are what prisoners of war are, and because those are the people they're going to be fighting and those are the people that they most want to uh, disable and they don't want to find out that there's something in the uh, the health of the Americans or um, their diet or medical treatment or something else which would um, make those weapons they've developed not as effective as they want them to be. So they make excellent guinea pigs for, um, for testing the weapons and the Chinese were doing that actively as well. And uh, once again the U.S. didn't want to acknowledge that this was being done to its prisoners of war because this would have put the State Department and the military and the office of the you know, the, the president in, uh, in the hot seat, wouldn't it? It sure would. You know, that, that's why this, this whole uh, arms race and military defense gets so uh, ironic and hypocritical because the United States has taken the position that, well, we never left anybody behind because they didn't want to deal with the political uh, problems. Well, if you left them behind, why don't you do something about it? You know, at least you could go public, but they don't want to go public because that breaks the silence. And so having done that, then they have to uh, maintain the lie and the fiction uh, forever and ever. And so they're, they're caught in a predicament, uh, particularly uh, uh, as the other wars took place and we kept losing more and more people and the uh, hue and cry uh, grew a little bit. And it may eventually come back, uh, but we still do nothing about it, all to our detriment. All to our detriment. And, and in your opinion, do you think that the United States is as vulnerable as it was at 9-11 or less vulnerable today? Oh, gosh, you know, that's a, that's a hard one to say. Uh, I think that the United States is more vulnerable, if for no other reason, than we have done very little to control immigration. And so you still have a whole pile of people coming in illegally and coming and going, and um, there's a lot of different things you can do to this country that would have disastrous consequences. And it comes across the open border. Right. And certainly chemical and biological warfare are are two of the things that could be done, and one was, was tried and uh, very effective in that little uh, episode of uh, anthrax, particularly effective in 
dramatizing the uh, what you brought up before. You know, how do you know who did it? Yeah, that is important. And when you have all these terrorist organizations like Al Qaeda that you, that are very shadowy, you don't really know who they are exactly attacking something. And and if different ones take responsibility, you don't know which one's really responsible. Uh, you're in a position where you can't retaliate with your nuclear deterrent. No, you can't. And the idea that you can, you know, if somebody uses chemical or biological and you're going to hit them with nuclear weapons, it, it's not the same thing, and uh, particularly if you don't know who did it. So it, 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 it is. It shows the whole thing as a house of cards. And, of course, this has to be a real indictment of our government and its uh, defense posture that it has not gotten control of the border. That's one. And the other thing is uh, how many billions have we given the Russians since 19... 89 and you know that figure is, is is what keeps them in the biological and chemical and nuclear warfare business probably in excess of 50 or 100 billion when you really look at all the avenues of the money going in there with me is joseph d douglas author of red cocaine and america the vulnerable and many other books uh, titles on uh, national security matters and we'll be back right after these messages you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Seculo live. That's right, Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang. As always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020, and we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host, and with me is Joseph D. Douglas, author of Red Cocaine, and uh, we've been talking about the biological and chemical warfare threat to the United States. Let's go back over to the drug and the corruption threat. Uh, you'd mentioned about corrupting the elite in the United States, and we are seeing in the business community more corruption, more corporate corruption, more uh, people doing things under in an underhanded way. And with these open borders and these foreign companies coming in from China, there's all kinds of front companies of the Chinese in the United States and Russian front companies in the United States as well. Could it be that our business class is being sort of flipped and uh, manipulated by a strategic entrepreneurial uh, series of movements? I, I think that there's just an unbelievable amount of corruption, Jeff, and uh, there's no one that's immune to it. This totally undermines our morality, and it uh, if you look at the drugs, it not only undermines the morality of the uh, the people who are taking the drugs, but also all the people who are confronted with this large amount of illegal money around and uh, who would like to uh, have a piece of that action. This money is being laundered through major banks, isn't it? Yes, 
PBS, I think, did a special called Follow the Money back in the late 80s or early 90s, and uh, where they started looking at banks that were involved in taking a state of Florida as an example. Uh, it was hard to find a bank in Florida that was not involved in money laundering. And you had a, one of the people who laundered the money from uh, Florida who was working for the Cali cartel back then, and he explained that uh, the bankers, large bankers, you know, we're talking about you know Citibank and, and that size bank, uh, would actually come and court his business, knowing perfectly well whose money it was that he was laundering. And they would go down to Latin America, to Colombia and Peru, and they would present uh, uh, basically briefings on how they could do a good job of laundering the money, and they're the banks that uh, ought to be used. And, of course, their logic was, was very clear because uh, the Commission on Laundering Money uh, ran usually from 15 to 20 percent. That high? You look at the drug trafficking in the United States, and I think the government estimates were grossly under what it is because of the numbers they were using because that's what they wanted to to have. But the real amount back in 1985 uh, estimated by the Justice Department was about $150 billion a year, and that's about the same as The Economist estimated in 1994 time frame at about $150 billion. And I remember when uh, DEA published some estimates of the homegrown marijuana and I just ran a calculation on how much money was involved based on their production estimates, and that's just homegrown marijuana, and that was $30 billion a year. Uh, our largest cash crop was illegal. Hmm. When you add in all the the other aspects of the drugs, you get up into a low of $150 billion and something that could easily be up to $200 billion or beyond. And that's not including, of course, organized crime that comes in on top of that. That's awful lot of money, and you start taking 15 or 20 percent of that, and you've got a darn good business going. And you have uh, political influence from that kind of money, don't you? You sure do. You, if you have, take the lower figure of $150 billion a year in the United States, every year. You know, now, that's all illegal, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to recognize that that means that the system is getting tremendously corrupted. The political system, the financial system, the banks, the courts, business system. Uh, that's just an enormous amount of money, and everybody's getting a piece of the action of it. And uh, so they're getting corrupted, and that corruption grows every year. And when the Soviets got into the business uh, back in the mid, the, actually their, their narcotics trafficking operation started about 1959, 1960, and one of the byproducts of that was lists of people of power and influence who were corrupted by the, by the drug business. And, of course, that was then to be used for blackmail and for uh, uh, buying agents of influence, if you will, since nobody wants to be recognized as involved in the narcotics trafficking, and so you're automatically a, a potential agent of influence for the people that can... Uh, uh, reveal what you've been doing. And this would include major figures in banks and large corporations? Large people of power of influence. And in the late 1960s, by the late 1960s, I should say, the Soviets and their associates had dossiers, active dossiers, on over 10,000 people of power and influence, and probably twice that many on up-and-coming people, but not what they would call power and influence.
when you when you look at the uh, long list of drug traffickers in a phone book of one of the people that was captured in Colombia, uh, he has, I recall, something like 1,500 or 2,000 names, and these included, you know, people in high-level politics and the judiciary and the police and the business community, you know, all the people they did business with. There was a guy coming into Canada in uh, uh, about five years earlier, I believe. I know I had headed in uh, red cocaine. And he also had a list of about 2,000 people. So, you know, thinking about 10,000 people, that is not large. And, and my estimate was that by the 1980s, that had to be at least 20,000 people. And these are top people of power and influence corrupted by the drug trade. A big portion of that is going to be in the United States since we're where the most of the money is for drugs and where the, the most of the focus was for bringing them in. If the Russians and even the Chinese are involved in this uh what you'd call red cocaine operation, and they're systematically looking at uh, elite people to the point of having, you know, files on them, on their background, on their psychology, on their history of, of what they're into. This, this gives tremendous levels of control and ability to manipulate the U.S. economic and political and, we could say, cultural system. That's right. As an example of of the care with which they build up this operation. They even had a hotel school, and it was operating to train people, particularly uh, in the hotel business, intelligence agents, so they could go then down to various hotels, such as in the Caribbean and the Latin America were, were very good examples, where they had people stationed in the major hotels, which were where the, the elite came, so that they could be there to provide them with the drugs needed to have a good time and to uh, then uh, add them to the list and follow them as they came back into the United States. And it could also they could also use sex as a way of recruiting people too, couldn't they? Absolutely. And they as everybody knows that's one of the oldest intelligence tricks for thousands of years. Yeah, the honey trap. Absolutely. That's very disturbing. So it would be logical to assume, given decades of this kind of penetration and this kind of intelligence operation using organized crime and drug trafficking and uh, blackmail, that, um, that one of the explanations for why the United States government isn't defending us properly is that it's been, in some sense, neutralized. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it, Jeff. <laughs> and the U.S. government wouldn't be the only one. No. It's a... Uh a global phenomenon, and when you start in bringing in uh, organized crime, which we can get into, it gets even worse. We wonder about uh, what uh, Tony Sutton used to call the, uh, the best enemy one can buy, mm -hmm. and all of the economic assistance that has gone, into, uh, gone to our enemies, uh, even when they knew they were our enemies all the forgiveness of debts that has gone to countries such as Russia or evaluating the, the debt such that it becomes trivial, as the United States did shortly after 1990. Or uh, all of a sudden, uh, the president has a good reason to say, well, let's terminate uh, all of our intelligence collection directed toward Russia because they're no longer our enemy. Now they're our compatriots here uh, uh, after the Berlin Wall fell. And that type of thing, well, if, if you believe that, uh, i got a brother that's got a bridge in Brooklyn he'd like to sell them hmm. also. Uh, we all know that the activities of Soviet intelligence never 
uh, slacked off a bit, and if anything, they increased and they took more of a commercial vein after uh, uh, the 1989 1991 changeover that took place. Uh, so you you start getting a feeling that, well, maybe there's some reasons why all the U.S. largest continues, why we cancel our, our, our intelligence coverage of the Soviet Union, which incidentally we did in 1990 under the Bush administration, and the Bush won. It amazed people in the agency. It amazed me. I'm not in the agency. But it was clear that if anything, at that particular time, you wanted to triple or quadruple your intelligence effort because for the first time, you had some confusion over there that you could uh, manipulate and turn to your advantage. Yet what did we do? We, we canceled our collection stations and safe houses and that type of thing. We just sort of closed off. It was no longer fair game. Uh, that was reported by uh, a former uh, head of the DDO, uh, Milt Bearden. So we intentionally stopped our strategic intelligence on Russia right at the moment when it was most crucial, where we could get a real leg up. Yeah, yeah, and particularly since they had a history of, of orchestrating various crises and then taking such actions that made it seem like they were changing and were going to become a normal capitalist country. You recall back in the 1920s or the 1950s or the 1970s, I mean, every 10 years they do something different like that. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a little bit more extreme than the usual ones, but still it's precisely the time you should have gone in because we didn't know anything about so many things, uh, um, particularly this field of chemical and biological warfare that, that uh, you brought up earlier. And, you know, it, it, it continued afterwards. In the book that uh, uh, Ken Alabek wrote, one of the defectors, the uh, deputy head of research for Biopreparat over in Russia, mm -hmm. and left there in 1992. And he wrote a book in 1997, and... He talked about the way in which he was treated, which was generally very well. Uh, and but what he said was that number one, you know, the size of the effort that we were ignoring, just from Biopreparat, his operation amounted to something like thirty thousand scientists and technicians. Think about it, thirty thousand, and that was just one of the BW projects. Hmm. They had something like you know forty or fifty. Uh, institutes, laboratories, compounds in order. They had something like 20 or so P4 facilities, each one 100 times larger than the two the U.S. has at Dietrich and CDC. And, you know, and a massive effort doing this stuff, which the guy talked about, and he said, you know, nobody wanted to know what we were capable of doing that he talked to. They didn't know whatever, want to know what our stockpiles were. They didn't know want to know anything about the genetic engineering associated with new agents because they said, well, you're no longer a threat. Russia is no longer a threat. And then the question has to be asked, why are they developing these things? Why do they continue to develop them? Because I know that more recent defectors have admitted that they are working on a super plague uh, bacteria, for example, super bubonic plague. Um, and the only reason is is that there's some kind of murderous thought in the back of the mind of the leaders in that country. Yeah, and the reason that we aren't following it or doing anything about it and maintaining silence over the Soviet Union is it's politically incorrect not to. And if you do, there's half a dozen people that will rise up and that'll be the end of your career. Mm -hmm. And chances are a lot of these people are on the Soviet corruption files. 
and they're agents of influence. How can there not be? And, of course, they might not even know they're Soviet agents because there'd be a false flag recruitment by criminals. That's true, too. So they would be doing things for criminals, not knowing exactly that these criminals are actually the servants or allies or partners of a, of a foreign regime. Right. That is quite terrifying. It, it almost seems to me, watching what's happening, is that there is some kind of idea that one day the Russians with their Chinese partners perhaps will simply decide that the United States has to go away and that one day they will just use these biological weapons to make us go away. It's the best weapon to use. Yeah, it leaves everything. You can put them where you want to. They're cheap, they're small, and we'll never know where they came from. So why not? Do you have any idea how effective these new biological agents are? I mean, what percentage of the population could they destroy in a large country like the U.S.? Well, it depends on, on what their next step is. Now, if their next step was to send in people, a police force, to take over the United States, then they'd want to uh, be pretty serious in, in uh, eliminating all sorts of people. Uh, on the other hand, that has not been a normal Soviet practice. Their practice generally has been to not come into a country until they have developed forces within that country using citizens of that country who will maintain order in that country after they come in or in anticipation of it. Uh, it's like the Soviets had a lot of uh, observers and total control over uh, Czechoslovakia and Germany and Poland and Hungary. Uh, but it was the Czechs, the Poles, the Germans, and the Hungarians that did most of the, uh, the legwork in their own countries for that. Yeah, they didn't need Soviet troops to control a lot of those countries. They had collaborators within those countries to help them control them. Right, and until you have that, that type of mechanism all set and ready to go, you don't want to attack because the whole reason for attacking is to take over. So the question is, how would you use the biological weapons? I mean, maybe you could use them to uh, take out a, a city like Washington, D.C., and take out another demonstration city, and then you quietly, one-on-one, -on -one, tell the people in the United States, well, uh, uh, you guys worry about how to control your people, and you can let them know that the only way that we're going to control this thing is if we have U.N. forces that come in here and we'll help manage those U.N. forces to uh, do a complete house-to-house -house search and, and certainly find all anybody and who might have done this in the United States and what the weapons are that they have that we can confiscate at the same time. Now, that would, would uh, involve uh, good utilization of all the U.S. police forces and maybe with the proper media control and, well, we need to do this, people, um, two million people have already died from this plague, uh, the population might sit still for it. And then you're totally disarmed, and you've got people in uh, in control. But it depends how you want to develop the scenario. And, of course, if you can elect a person president in this country who's under your control as an agent, and he brings or she brings with them uh, all of their staff that are involved in your operation, uh, you could use this kind of terrorist uh, event to cause them to be able to declare a dictatorship. That's absolutely true. And you know, when you look at uh, many of the people who we have elected, uh, I've looked at several, and I conclude that there's a great deal of difference between the actions they do and the words that come out of the mouth, mm. the rhetoric. Yes. And the best description of that was what Sena told me about the Kennedy assassination. Santa was the highest level defector we've ever had, the only one to come into our country from 
decision-making hierarchy. He was a Czech. Mm -hmm. And he said the Kennedy assassination, it was the only one that the Soviets actually flew their flag at half-mast. And they flew it that way, not in respect for the United States, but send a signal, here is the type of president we can live with. And he said further that the reason they did it with Kennedy was because, as Khrushchev told him, he said he had a strong anti-communist rhetoric and position, but he did everything we wanted done. Hmm, that's interesting. With me is Joe Douglas. He is the author of Red Cocaine and other books about uh, the threat to this country, which is not the normal threat you think about. We'll be back right after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women's oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right. With me is my guest, Joe Douglas. Uh, he's author of many books on national security subjects. And uh, I, I want to ask you your concluding remarks or comments. What do you think is important that the listeners uh, hear tonight? Well, you know, we've, we've talked about so many topics, Jeff, and in all cases it's underscored by the fact that there's not a lot of information out there telling the truth. And then we're posed by... Uh, how do you judge uh, the people who are up for elections and what ones make any sense? And uh, more than ever before, I think we're in a case where you can't depend on the media, especially not the television news or the establishment media. You've got to start to dig in and find out what's happening yourself in some small area of your interests and then look very hard at who's running. And, of course, if, if the United States were to have a revolution now, they would be in a position to hijack whatever revolution we had. Absolutely. Because the, the people that are benefiting from the past are the people that now control the press, and the uh, political parties, and the money. And, of course, it isn't the old-fashioned communist ideology of Joseph Stalin. It's, it's sort of a, a new blend of corruption, uh, drugs, and uh, organized crime linked interests together. It sure is, Jeff, and it, it brings up another point that most people don't recognize, and that is the, uh, the connection or the nexus between the communist world, or what has been regarded as the communist world, and uh, international finance capitalists, and uh, the people that have built up uh, our enemies. It's like in the drugs and the narcotics trafficking, the uh, money laundering operation that was restructured in 1965 because they had so much money coming in at that time they had to restructure it. That money laundering structuring was not something that was done by the KGB or the GRU. They were in on it, but the key people that did it were the heads of international finance. And that means that they must have been in some sense in league or in partnership with uh, these criminal uh, foreign elements. That's right. And you know what uh, what Santa told me about that? Uh, he said, uh, he said, Joe, never was there a decision made in Moscow that international finance was not present. The bankers were a key element in Soviet plans, 
they were the number two priority for penetration of agents of influence. Hmm. What was the number one priority? Uh, usually counterintelligence and the intelligence or decision-making uh, uh, arm of the government. Wow. The banks were so high because they could walk into places like the White House. They had inside connections very high. Also, being active in industrial financing was a, the best source you could think of in terms of information on industrial developments and places to send agents. Uh, they had all the contacts with the top people in various companies, and they would have various you know, parties and uh, um, you know, networking operations and invite uh, agents of influence there so that they could be introduced to uh, important executives in business, in uh, industry, or in science and technology. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And, and Joe, could you tell our uh, listeners how to get your books? Uh, what books you'd recommend that they, that they get that are in print that are out there today? The best way is to go on the Internet and just uh, Google on Joseph Douglas. Okay, and that's Douglas with two S's at the end. Yes, it is. Either that or they can Google directly on Red Cocaine or go to Amazon. Amazon carries that one. And they also carried Betrayed which is a, a devastating account of what happened to missing American prisoners of war. Yes, that is a devastating account and uh, an, an astonishing thing to abandon POWs in Vietnam and Korea. I want to thank you, Joe, for being with us. Uh, this has been very informative, very important show. Well, thank you, Jeff, and good luck on your new program. I think it's a terrific step for you. All right. Well, thank you, Joe, and, and uh, we'll interview you again in the future. We'll look forward to that. Good night now. Good night. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern and Japanese away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard my guest, Joe Douglas, tonight talk about how terrorism, organized crime, and drug trafficking are strategic intelligence operations of the former Soviet bloc. These operations have had success decade after decade. They have not been abandoned. The fall of the Soviet Union did not bring them to an end. They continue to this day. The terrorism coming from the Middle East was inspired, started in Moscow. The man who developed airline hijacking was a KGB general in Moscow. We know this because of the testimony of the former acting head of the Romanian intelligence service, Ion Pesepa. He wrote it in an article for National Review Online, just so many months ago. We know that, that a lot of the terrorists in the world operating in many countries, in Africa, Asia, and in Europe, they were trained by the Soviet Union or in former Soviet countries. They're given weapons and explosives by the former Soviet bloc. In fact, when you go and you look at, at the, the Israelis fighting Hamas or Hezbollah up in Lebanon, 
The weapons that Hezbollah are using, the rockets and everything, were developed by the Soviet bloc. The Syrians, who are supporting the terrorists in that part of the world, their weapons come from Russia, or in some cases from China and other former Soviet republics. This is not an accident. It's not an accident either that Iran is acquiring its nuclear weapons from Russia with help from China, acquiring the ability to manufacture nuclear weapons, I should say, and that Iran's missile defense systems, coastal defense systems, submarines, and other weapons come from Russia. The fact of the matter is the United States is involved in a long-term struggle for its survival as a free country, and that struggle is with the countries formerly known as the Communist Bloc. And what our guest tonight, Joe Douglas, told us was that they have been using organized crime as well as terrorism and laundering of drug money to corrupt our banks, to draw our bankers and financial people and our capitalists into league with them so that they can have a hold on them and manipulate them so that they have some control in our politics. And the degree of this control, I believe, is much greater than any of us realize. There have been, for many of us that watch the national security beat, many of us know that, that there are moves that our government should have done years ago to protect us. They haven't taken place. There are things that should be happening, especially, as our guest mentioned, down on the border with Mexico or up on the border with Canada. These things have not happened. And the reason they haven't happened? Very probably because we have been influenced. Our open economic system is open to the enemy, too, open to his influence. And our political system, which depends on our economic system, is also open to influence. So now, as we, as we head toward a presidential election, I think we should all be looking very carefully at who the people are that are running and what their real agenda is. And we should also look at businesses this way, their dealings in China, their dealings in former Soviet countries, we need a country that is honest and has integrity and its business people are not willing to sell the country out. I hope for this. I really do. And I hope you'll stay tuned next week for my next guest. I am Jeff Nyquist, and this has been The Jeff Nyquist Show. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.